Hello, welcome to Flourishing Education, the podcast that hosts powerful, imperfectly perfect conversations and shines the light on amazing individuals and their work in order to empower young people, teachers, educators, leaders and parents to live a happy and fulfilled life and most importantly, to flourish. We really hope you enjoy all our conversations. Hello and welcome to another powerful, imperfectly perfect conversation for the Flourishing Education podcast. Today I'm delighted to introduce you to Olka Joshi Hansen. So Olka is author of Future of Smart and she's the Chief Program Officer of Grantmakers for Education uh, in the United States. A very warm welcome to the podcast. Thank you Fabian, it's lovely to be here. Yes, delighted to uh, to have you here. So love your book. We're going to talk a lot about that. I will put the links for people to go and buy your book because I think you know parents and young people and educators should go and read your book. There's so much in there. Um, but also of your TED Talks because you've obviously got, is it two TED Talks or do you have more? Yeah, two. No, two. Okay, yep. yes. Wonderful. So loads to unpack. Um, what a privilege to have you as a guest, so thank you. Thank you. Wonderful. So to start our conversation, Elka, do you want to tell us a bit more about you? I mean, two podcasts, author of a book, uh, you know, chief program officer of, of Grant Makers for Education. How did you get to where you are and, and you know, this passion for education? Oh, well, I, I want to say not two podcasts. I have two TED Talks, but I do have a podcast that's going to be launched also called The Future of Smart through Grantmakers for Education. Uh, but I am first and foremost a mother. Um, I have two boys. They are 15 and 13. So in the U.S., that would be first year of secondary school and almost um, through primary. Um, and really, I feel like when I began working as a teacher and I began the research that led to the book, um, it was really these children that I hoped I would have one day but didn't yet have um, that were in the back of my minds in terms of what would I want for my own children, what would I have wanted for myself um, in terms of education. But um, just to go back a little bit to the beginning, and I do talk about this in the book, but I am um, what's known as a third culture kid. And I hadn't heard that term until um, a couple of years ago, but it's, it's a word for somebody who is raised by parents who grew up in one culture, you're grow, you grow up in a second culture, and then at some point in your formative years, you live in at least one other culture. My parents are Indian by background, but they uh, were born and raised in Tanzania, in East Africa. Um, they immigrated to the US. I was born in the US, but then grew up with relatives in Tanzania until I was school age. And then before I left secondary school, um, I had studied in France, um, in Germany. Afterwards, I spent time in Dubai and England and India and Botswana. So there are a lot of influences. And the thing about that is because you're living across cultures, it's really interesting to see patterns and commonalities across cultures and peoples. And so in that way, I'm a, I kind of I, I get to see and synthesize. The downside is you don't really belong anywhere because you never kind of spend enough time to root. Um, and so I've always thought that it's interesting that I'm really, in, I'm, a, I'm drawn to educational experiences that make this idea of belonging and identity such a central part of what they do. 
But, you know, I really thought that's what education was going to be when I started teaching, and it wasn't. Um, I started teaching in an urban district in the U.S. in the late 90s, and we were right at the front end of standardization. The U.K. followed us, um, I feel like, and, um, and came out of it before we did. But I left pretty quickly because I felt like they were asking me to do things to children that weren't allowing allowing them to flourish, right? They needed something that I wasn't able to give them, the system wasn't able to give them. And the 20 years since have really been about researching different kinds of programs and schools and trying to figure out how we shift the whole system in the direction of more human-centered models. Amazing. And so how do we shift the whole system? To, um, oh my goodness. <laughs> We're gonna start huge, there. Huge, huge question, right? Oh um, my goodness. <laughs> What's the, so, so I, I mean, you know, obviously it's a big question. Um, the one thing I wanted to, to say is I still relate to the, um, the, the third culture and living in a, you know, obviously being from different uh, backgrounds. You know, I grew up in France, mm-hmm. um, then moved, lived in Spain for a bit, then moved to the UK. So like yes. you, uh, that sense of belonging has always been a, a huge part of my life and I think it's really interesting that I often feel when I go back to France people refer to us as uh, les anglais so the English the, the mm-hmm. Brits um, and here in, in in England we live in a, in a rather small village and people refer to me as the French lady in the village so mm-hmm. it's a it's a real <laughs> yes I get no sense of belonging it's like wherever yes. I go people go what's your accent so that's um, right that's yeah. right yeah. So, what are you you know that one comes up what are you like a person I guess (laughs) yes and it's that pigeonholing right I think that as human beings we we are meaning making machines and we like to uh, make sense of the person we have in front of us yes Um, so so to go back to my question about like changing the system a lot of the work that you talk about, you talk about, for example, of, you know, providing young leaders with student-centered learning. Mm-hmm. So shall we start with that, perhaps, uh, rather than the great big question? Great big question? <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, so I, in the book, I actually have shifted to using the term human-centered um, because student feels like it focuses so much on this role of somebody as a student, as opposed to a full human being. Somebody suggested I might wanna call it humanity-centered or something like that. Um, But yeah, human-centered education to my mind is really how human beings have always learned. So the irony is that I think right now we are living inside of a form of education that is very artificial and was birthed out of a very particular cultural context in Europe in the late 1700s, early 1800s. But that is not how human beings have always lived, flourished, learned. Right? We've, we've lived in our communities and our families out in the world. We've learned through experience. We've learned what we've needed to, to survive and to thrive. And so it's really, for me, human-centered education is getting back to that, which is, you know, the three R's I use in one of my TED Talks is really grounding students in relationship and then in relevance, like how is their education connected to who they want to be in the world, and then reintegration in terms of reintegrating them back into their communities and reintegrating all of the subjects that we tore apart in this artificial thing we currently call school. And, you know, the reason I think that's more important than ever 
right? It's this human-centered approach has always existed as long as the factory model, the industrial model of education has existed. There have always been people like Rousseau and Froebel and Montessori, Steiner, who have pushed for this more human-centered approach, but it's always been countercultural. And I think what's really interesting at this moment with technology and non-biological intelligence and the rate of change is that we need human beings to have human capabilities, the capacity to empathize, to be creative, to communicate, to collaborate, to kind of deal with ambiguity and complexity. And, um, and that is not what our systems are designed to do. And so it feels like this, this shift we're poised for it. And I think COVID and the disruptions of COVID make that you know, an even better moment to really take seriously this idea of transformative change. And I wonder whether you could talk to uh, a post that, I mean, that sort of correlates to what you were saying. So one of my, the, the big thing that I've noticed being in the system and, you know, uh, like you, sort of, you know, I'm currently on a career break, but also since COVID, I have homeschooling the children. So seeing the children um, doing the, the schoolwork um, and, you know, linking it to what I was seeing in the subjective, sort of the low levels of subjective well-being in the students at university, I just went, oh, this may, well, this may explain this, okay? Mm -hmm. um, and then also looking at how the approach to the system, the, the, what we, we, the way we approach learning and, and even, you know, socializing in schools, it's very much what I call perhaps sort of focused on the power so uh very uh you know you do this I'm the adult and you're an empty vessel and I'm gonna fill you up with my with my knowledge and I'm the adult I know better than you um and so the other you know one of the thing I often say is that we have this power like we have power over or some adults believe they've got power over the young people or others um and that um, this love aspect, so the caring, is seen as a bit of a soft mm. uh, aspect, right? Um, mm -hmm. So how does that resonate with your work, you know, in terms of uh, one of the, I guess, the biggest pushback, I guess, I, I get when I say, you know, we have a world that is really fostering individualism and competitiveness and therefore fear of failure all the things that I see in my research mm -hmm. is that well, we need to be competitive and we need to be quite individualistic mm -hmm. so how can we link that to like your work and that human-centered learning so it, I, I love that you asked that question right because I think you were describing the characteristics of the school system and the education that we see on the surface and part of my work and my interest has always been kind of what's underneath that, right? What are the underlying values and assumptions that undergird this system? Because it feels like that's where we need to dig in. And so I, I actually think we have to go back about 500 years, which is further back than most of us go when we think about our education system and changing it. And I, I talk in my work about this moment in Europe where for a lot of complicated sociocultural reasons that other people have researched more than I have, there was this um, sudden shift, maybe not sudden, but gradual over a century, shift in human beings' conception of, their, of, of themselves, right? So before that time, human beings across cultures had had very similar 
ways of living in small kind of settlements, tribes, largely migratory, right? Personal property wasn't a thing. And they saw themselves as, as part of the earth, part of a living system, right? Connected to each other. So it was very much about wholeness and interconnectedness and interdependency. And in, in Europe around 550 years ago, um, there was this shift as scientists and the philosophers of the time began to replace this metaphor of the world as a living organism with the metaphor of world as machine. And if the world is a machine, right, we can take it apart into its smallest pieces, understand them, put them back together again and understand the whole. And um, I always say Descartes really kind of symbolizes this with his, I think, therefore I am, right? I think it is all about this conceptual abstracted understanding. And so there was the shift into fragmenting the world, taking it out of context to understand it, privileging abstraction. And so that Cartesian Newtonian worldview emerged in the sciences and then it moved into the social sciences and our education system was birthed out of very similar values. So we didn't see children as living beings that were unfolding and developing and growing. We saw them as small adults who were tiny vessels that were empty that you poured information into, which explains some of the power dynamic. Efficiency, right, became a very important part of that. How did we most efficiently do this? And most of all, education was, was seen as being about creating social, political, and economic units, as opposed to helping the individual to unfold and to thrive. And so I think a lot of the things you just described, right, that we see on the surface are really grounded in those, in, in that Cartesian Newtonian worldview that I, I sort of juxtapose to a more holistic indigenous worldview. Although having just said that, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say that in the book, there's a diagram and it's a sort of circle inside of a circle because I wanna be very clear, right? The sciences, the way that we think about the Cartesian Newtonian empirical study research, hugely important, right? Um, we, we wouldn't be sitting here having this conversation on multiple levels if we didn't have vaccines and technology, but it shouldn't be the driver. And so a lot of the things that emerge out of a Cartesian Newtonian worldview need to be seen in a broader context, which is what I think the indigenous holistic worldview gives us. And so you can see two different kinds of systems emerging. And in education, the factory model came out of the Cartesian Newtonian worldview and a more human-centered approach emerges out of that holistic indigenous worldview. Amazing. And I often, so again, like so much synergy because I often uh, talk about my frustration with, you know, obviously the work I've been doing around flourishing is in higher education, but mm -hmm. the feeling that I often have of, you know, looking at education or a system like an engine. So trying to tweak it like part of an engine to make it rev better. So mm -hmm. let's look after student well-being, which is really important because obviously they're suffering. But um, like you, I, I like to go deeper than the surface lev level of the iceberg, right? But when you do cultural competence, you understand that the culture iceberg is massive mm -hmm. and that only 10% is the surface level. Um, yes, yeah. And so I often say the problem with treating it like an engine and making it rev better or trying to make it rev better is that we have unin unintended consequences on other parts, right? And mm -hmm. what I'm seeing and the reason I ask to be out for one year is that I was borderline sort of uh, uh, burnout and sort of thinking I can't give anymore. My tank is empty and, I, and if I can't give to others, there's no point because obviously... Mm -hmm 
you know, you, you, you can't give, you can't pour from an empty cup, right? Right, right. Um, so I wonder whether you could talk to us about uh, the, the difference if we take from, rather than just taking this, um, this very Cartesian sort of Descartes and, you know, the minds and the heads and the thinking and the rational. Mm -hmm. And if we explore this holistic, um, you know, aspect of of uh, of education what does it look like would you be able mm. to tell us i will and and before i do that i just want to go back to our previous conversation because something you said feels really important right the this the systems the culture the ways of being that were birthed out of this cartesian newtonian worldview they were exported out of europe through colonization right and so it is the dominant worldview and now the dominant systems, right? Hyper-individualistic systems, unrestrained capitalism, the idea that we kind of medicine is about avoiding death, it's not about wellness, um, right? All sorts of systems. And in the US in particular, I think we're having these debates about the kinds of systems that we want because I think the US is a little bit more extreme than most of, the, most of our peer nations. Um, and in the US, we're having lots of debates about white supremacy culture. And I actually don't like that term because I actually think it's a modern Western supremacy culture that undergirds a lot of what's going on here. And it harms all of us, right? Because at the end of the day, it is depriving all of us from full connection to who we are as human beings and to our kind of deepest, truest nature. And, um, and, and it's not an either or. Right? It's not that you take one and have to get rid of the other. That's a very Cartesian Newtonian way of thinking. A holistic indigenous one has room for both and. It's the yin yang, it's the opposite kind of energies that balance each other out. And so I think when a lot of these conversations about, well, you know, if we, if we, one of the conversations I hear is if we do all this social emotional stuff, then kids won't learn the academics. No, it's not one or the other, it's not binary. Um, and, and so your, your analogy of, taking an engine and tinkering it. Some of my research was trying to understand how this Cartesian Newtonian holistic indigenous worldview divide plays out in education today. And it's based in the US, but based on my initial research that I did in the UK over um, several years in Clacton-on-Sea, which you, you and your, your listeners will know where that is. Um, schools kind of fall into th three buckets. Right? The first bucket is conventional, which is your modern day version of a factory model school. The second is this very big bucket called whole child innovative reform. And basically they understand what's wrong with the conventional system, but they bolt on. And so I talk about it as bolting on, they bolt on initiatives to try and mitigate the shortcomings, whether it's culturally responsive practice or socio-emotional curriculum or project-based learning, but there's so much to fix, right? Because it, you know the conventional system doesn't reflect human development, doesn't reflect how we learn, it doesn't honor neurodiversity and diversity of minds. So there's so much to fix that no one can actually fix it all. And if you try, it gets so heavy that the system kind of collapses under its own weight, which is what I've seen and heard from educators, you know, all around the world when you talk with them. And the third bucket is these are these human-centered liberatory models that are designed out of a more holistic indigenous set of values. And so instead of bolting things on, I think of it more as weaving. They've sort of designed their programs in ways that weave things like relationship, that weave things like mutuality and respect, 
that weave the idea of interconnected learning and learning out in the world, right, into everything that they do. And so for me, the, the sort of question when we think about it is, how do we make the shift from, you know, the, the first two buckets into the third bucket? And that's where I spend a lot of my time as well. So now we're getting closer to your first question yeah. about how do we shift the system? Yeah. Yeah. And again, that resonates so deeply with my own research and progress. So I started in 2014 thinking, oh my goodness, after a nine-year break from higher education going, what's going on here? Um, to sort of looking at individual well-being, thinking, okay, well, if we sort the individual, then maybe things will change. And then I was just like, we then moved with my colleague going, no, no, we need to look at the community. So we started looking at, okay, um, embedding well-being in the curriculum um, and, you know, looking at a little bit like what you're saying, so sort of weaving the, what we know, for example, from Australia, from Bacon, all the five well-being essentials, right, into mm -hmm. what we do. Um, but like you're saying, because these young people are the product of a system that fosters a different approach, it's very difficult to shift things, right? Mm -hmm. And now I've moved to this approach where, well, actually, it's it's not, an, and like you were saying, and 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 or it's a it's a it's a very delicate dance almost with um with life with with everything else and it's a it's a real systemic so we all part of the system you know um and so i'm really i, I i'm really really excited to hear what you've got to say next because um it's this yeah to me it's the you know the the i the we the us you know, how do we make it all work together? How do we create those systemic changes? And the other thing you mentioned is you said, um, you know, it's about understanding who we are as human beings and, you know, tapping into the values of, of this uh, holistic indigenous uh, approach. So I'd love to, to hear more around those as well. So I want to make sure I'm understanding the question. So like, are you, do we, do we want to just go into how some of these programs look in terms of like what we see, what we notice? Yeah. I just want to make sure I'm understanding. The no, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so from what you were saying about the, um, you know, you, you, you were talking about the, the fact that it's not an either or right. Mm -hmm. And that the sort of like moving into the, the third part, which is the weaving um, that holistic indigenous and yes. you, you said that as part of that I would assume that if they're weaving it that we start with their values and like the underpinning of those values so could we could we explore those for sure for sure and that's um that's a helpful transition so here's here's the first thing I don't think it is a seamless kind of linear move from the first to the second to the third bucket, right? Because you have to design out of an, an entirely different mindset and understanding of the world and understanding what's possible inside of systems. And so, because these systems are more ecological, they think of the human body. The human body has individual parts to it, each of which operates independently, but they are part of slightly larger, bigger, bigger systems where they all have to work together and be both individual and systemic. And then those grow into an even bigger system that is alive and living. And so you, you described it as a dance. And I think that's absolutely right, right? It's this living ecological dance in which each person inside of it 
is kind of balancing who they are with a kind of sense of community and sort of what the community needs. And then even that community is sitting inside of a bigger kind of ecosystem that is responsive to it, which sounds really complicated, right? Except when you look at nature and you look at ecological systems, they're elegantly simple, um, right? And so what I found fascinating, what I found fascinating over time is to spend time inside of some of these systems, right? These human-centered programs where to your point, they have been very intentional about starting first with purpose, right? What are we up to? And the answers that these programs give universally is not that we're getting kids college ready or career ready or even citizenship ready. They say, we're about helping to create young people who have, have what they need to thrive in life. And part of that is academic, it's cognitive, it's social, it's emotional, it's about identity, it's about purpose, right? It's all of, it's this broad set of things. And then they're very intentional about saying, so human development between zero and 25 is a really unique period of human growth. So what stage of development are the children that we're working with in? And what do we know about their phases of development? And they usually take it in age bands. So they don't just say six-year-olds and eight-year-olds. They say, you know, from zero to eight, what do we know generally speaking in early childhood? What do we know about late childhood? What do we know about early adolescence? So they think about human development they think about learning, right? So that learning is not just, um, it's, we're not like computers. We have to make sense. We have to have make meaning out of things. We need to engage with things in ways that allow us time and give us a sense of why we wanna do it. And then they answer the question, what are we gonna teach? What are we gonna cover? And how are we gonna do it? And then what do adults need to be able to do to do all that work? And then how, what systems do we need? And so they very intentionally crafted kind of ways of doing this. And so the examples I always use because they are the oldest are things like Montessori, things like Steiner Waldorf. Krishnamurthy was somebody that I used as a secondary school example. In the US, I often now use big picture learning, but they are all programs where if you walk in and you ask anybody, the adults, the young people, even families, what is being done and why, they all have a very coherent sense of that. Right. And so because they are all aware of what they're doing, it is much more likely that they are going to be able to kind of move in this elegant dance without stepping on each other's toes or creating chaos within the system. And so one big part right, of the shift is, I think, being willing. I think in education, everyone wants to recreate the wheel by themselves all the time. But I actually think it is such complex work that we need to honor models that are longstanding and exist and do really good work. We need to codify very intentionally some many of the newer kind of ways of doing this that are coming out, but you need to codify it so that it's a template for other folks to begin the work. And then they can make it their own. They can take it to their context. They can add things, take things out, but you're at least starting with a coherent template because otherwise it becomes really, really hard, right? It's a cognitive overload for everybody. So I'll pause there because I was talking a lot. Yeah, and the and I guess what what we need is how you quantify it and how what mm -hmm. the template looks like. Mm -hmm. So are there elements like you know specific elements that you could talk to or tell us about that are really important? I mean, you've already said several times sense of belonging and purpose. Mm -hmm. So I assume they're big features in the in this. They um, are. But are there others that we haven't mentioned and that perhaps we need to know about? 
So the big thing I would say is that all of these programs start with relationship, right? So they are grounded in relationship and they spend a lot of time creating the culture of the environment or the program and its relationships between adults and students, between students and students, adults and adults. And in terms of age bands, right, for the younger kiddos, it's relationships with a focus on independence because that's what young people want to do. For that kind of middle school band, the year five, six, seven, eight, it's about um, belonging. So really, as I'm moving out of my family and moving into my peers and other adults, how do I belong in this system? And then for older students in secondary, it's a, a sense of identity, right? Who do I now want to become in the world? Right. And then academically, they're all about inter um, interdisciplinary work. So for young kids, it's academics and they design the academic experiences to really help young people and elementary band understand how ideas connect to each other because they all do. And so you can enter it anywhere, but kind of see the whole for middle schoolers. It's a sense of relevance. Right. Why should I care? Which is what every student that age asks. Um, and then for older students, it's a sense of purpose. So who do I want to be in the world? And in what ways does my education help prepare me for the next steps that I'm taking? And then underneath it, I mean, there's a, a table in my book where it really does kind of break down the different um, pieces under elements. So for purpose, right, you do have academic, cognitive, social, emotional, etc. But there are nuances there as well, right? So in the, in the human-centered programs, relationship is not functional. We don't do it so that kids will do better academically. We do it because we are human beings and we cannot do anything else if we are not in strong relationship with ourselves and with others, right? And, um, and then there's a column on developmental needs of certain ages. There are learning theories that are more teacher-centered, more student-centered, different ways of thinking about assessment, right? You don't sit in this bucket if you don't do self-assessment, um, peer assessment, authentic work products, portfolios, exhibitions, right? Ways that students can demonstrate their learning that are not just written tests or standardized tests. So hopefully that, that kind of lays out some of the elements and then how people put those together are really different, but there are some, some components, things like advisories or the looping of educators with students over multiple years that are quite common because how do you get to know people if you're not with them for a consistent period of time? There's also a sense that it's not just one educator and a group of students, right? It's a system in which students have multiple touch points with multiple adults because we're all gonna find what we need in different places and different pieces. So yeah, there, there are then other pieces like advisories that allow you to meet the relationship needs. They allow you to sort of understand, hey, let's know this student and what their individual outcomes are gonna be. And I have an eye on what they did last year and what they want to do next year. And so it's coherent, right? So small structures like that actually hit a lot of needs in the design. Yeah, amazing. And so it sounds to me like it's very focused on the needs of the individual, right? On their specific needs based on what, uh, what their ages are, but also I guess their cognitive development because we know that we all, so my big thing in, in, in my book is, I, and again, another synergy is I talk about how, uh, what I've seen from, from the students at the university, they arrive, what I, what I sort of say is they don't know what type of flower, tree, shrubs or plant they are in the garden mm. called life. Mm. And so, there you know and if you are often sort of say to my tutees if you're if you're a climbing ivy you need a a wall to support 
you to climb sort of effectively. And there's a there's a sense to me that there's the, the, the current system is saying to our young people, well, you all you all daft, right? So you're gonna be daffodils in and this is how you're going through this education system. And the erroneous sort of thinking is that even if that were true, it, you look at daffodils, well, they're all different, right? In height, in color, in shape and size. So mm -hmm. I was often said to people, even if that were true, <laughs> look at the ecology. And this is what you're saying about bio, biodiversity yes. and uh, you know, the ecological. So um, I, I wonder how we, you know, sort of exploring what you were saying and how given the system is and the three buckets mm -hmm. um, and the slow transition, how do we start the dance towards that change? Um, if, I, if, I, if I'm a parent or an educator in the system and I'm listening to this conversation um, and I listen to your amazing work, I might feel either overwhelmed or, you know, <laughs> or like, oh my God, what, where do I start? Or, you know, and you alluded to that, right? So what would be your advice to those parents or those educators as sort of like the, the smallest steps toward change? That is so that is so great. And I do for people who are feeling that I really tried in the book to kind of make this real and not make it overwhelming. But Fabian, can I go back one second to this question about the daffodils, which I just I love that notion, because I think so my background is in special education. And I do think our current system pathologizes different kinds of minds, right, so that we are all a unique kind of constellation of cognitive abilities. So if anybody is familiar with things like the WISC or the WIPSI, or you think a child might have a learning difference, you do these assessments, which are not foolproof, but generally, right, human beings have verbal, visual, perceptual, working memory, processing speed, and then a bunch of affective and attentional issues. And we're all different. And there's no good or bad. You know, I had my, my profile done for, for the book just in the research phase. And it turns out my working memory is somewhere in the 50th percentile, which makes a ton of sense. I always have a notebook and pen because I have to write things down. I can't keep it in my head and use it. Processing speed, right, for me is, is lower on new things because it takes me a while. I wanna go in deep, I wanna make connections. So there's no right or wrong. But the way that our current system works, right, because it is so efficiency oriented, because it is so much about conceptual learning, because it tests students based on reading and writing and now on their work with computers, it privileges certain cognitive profiles. It privileges students who are highly verbal. It privileges students who don't come in with working memory and cognitive, uh, working memory and processing speed differences because you've got to follow the teacher's pacing, right? And it doesn't work really well because you're not doing rich social and emotional work for students who might come in with trauma or attentional issues or might need to move, right, to, to learn. And so what this kind of human-centered approach does is say, right, neurodiversity is important. It is a real thing. It is even more important in the world that we're going into than the world we came from because we have complex problems and challenges and opportunities and different minds see the world differently. And we don't know what's gonna be valuable, right? They say Silicon Valley for better or for worse was driven by, by individuals who have sort of a, a kind of autistic tendencies because they were able to see and kind of think about the world in new ways. NASA has many people in 46%, I think, who have dyslexia and but, 
right? Their visual perceptual way of seeing the world is really, um, really keen. And so part of the human-centered approach is, yeah, you can't, you want students to understand who they are and it doesn't lock you in, right? If I say, here's where I'm starting, then I can have a better conversation about if I want to, if I have dyslexia and I want to write novels, I can do that. I just need to figure out the right pathway for me to take that or to take to get there. And so I think that's a really important part of this is that, and it goes back to your power question, you are putting the power in the hands of the young person as they begin to learn who they are, where their areas of strength are, where their areas of growth are, and empower them to kind of make choices about how to navigate the world, grow in areas that they want to, and not beat themselves up over the head or be labeled for the things that might not be the areas they want, right? And you talked about secondary, about um, higher education students. I think that's what we see, right? They have been they have been spending all this time in a system that tells them all the ways that they don't measure up. And of course, they're gonna be deflated and completely feeling horrible about themselves. I feel like adults spend a lot of time getting over their education before they go out into the world and realize that they're thousands of different ways for them to flourish, right? And um, and schools should be the place where you begin to learn about that, not after. So anyway, that was a, that was a, a bit of a tangent, but you asked about concrete examples. I think of this as kind of exercising different kinds of muscles, right? So if you, if, if somebody is listening to this and they're an educator, I think there are small muscles that you, we can exercise on a daily basis. So for you, it might be, really paying attention to how you are feeling about students who come in who might be challenging for you and really kind of work on, on capabilities that allow you to just hold space for that student in different ways. And whether it's their trauma or the fact that they might come out and seem really belligerent to you, that could be one way. Another way could be to try something. There's, a, there's a, something called a genius hour, which is an hour per week where you just say to students, what do you wanna do? and you let them do it and you just facilitate. It's only an hour, but it gives them a chance to exercise some agency. It gives you an opportunity to see who they are and what they gravitate towards. I will say that the first few times you do it, students often don't know what to do, especially if they're older because they've never been asked, but keep at it, right? You could do Socratic seminar where it really is an intentional shift from the adult facilitating the conversation to students doing it. And all of that requires a little bit of gradual release, but they're great. This is the beauty of the world today. There's so many resources um, and I have some of them in the book, but there's so many resources out there depending on which path you wanna take. Um, if you're a parent, you know, I wrote a piece um, that got into the Washington Post a couple of weeks ago that was really saying to parents, like we get scared I think, right? For us, the world is uncertain. We feel like we want to put our, our children on the best possible path. And we sometimes fall into the mindset of my child has to check the boxes. My child has to get an A. My child has to take all the coursework so that they get into, into higher education. And I said, you know, can, can we shift and can we ask our children questions? And I struggle to do this, but ask my children questions about you know, what did they notice about what they learned? What did they notice about what they were interested in? How can I kind of support you in something independent that you wanna do? How can I not fight with you about homework, especially with the younger kids because homework really doesn't do very much for them, right? It's things like that. Um, I think it's about asking, I call the book, The Future of Smart because I think we need to shift from a system that asks, are you smart? Which is a binary yes or no, to how are you smart? 
right? And really kind of asking students to reflect on that and being able to see your child, right? What are their unique kind of skills and being their advocate inside of a system that doesn't always see that. Um, so, you know, those are, those are kind of some suggestions. And then I think everyone inside the system has their own sphere of influence. So if you're a school leader, right, what are the things you can do to give your educators and your teachers a little bit more room to try something different? Um, if you are a policymaker, and some of this stuff is really important after, after COVID, and it's partly the US context, right? You still have Ofsted, but our standardized testing system has gone down the tubes. And so we have no accountability. So how do we hold programs accountable? How can we give them more room to say, what do you think is important? And how are you going to measure that and move away from this obsession with quantitative kind of standardized, and I'm using air quotes, people can't see it, but standardized data, because it's not standardized. Everything is human kind of uh, is human interpreted anyway. So I think sphere of influence is also important. But the biggest thing here is I think, I think of this as spread, not scale. So I think it's about how do we kind of plant these seeds and kind of scatter them all over in different families, in different communities, in different school systems. And we can start small. Maybe it's a program inside of a school. Maybe it's one school inside of a larger kind of catchment area. But how do we kind of plant the seeds and then allow them to kind of emerge, share the stories of what's working. And I think when people see what's possible and they meet young people who come from these programs, they go, why can't my child have that, right? And then you're creating demand for it in a way that pushes us you know, into the next stage of, of change adoption. Yes. So I, two things popped up as you were, as you know, when you were talking that I, I love us to explore. You've mentioned several times, like the, the ability to, or the reflection. So encouraging or asking our young people to, to reflect back, right? Which um, the current system certainly in the UK is not really encouraging. I don't know if it's the same in the States. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'll give you, uh, uh, I, I'd love you to, to, to talk about like what you've seen in some of the more uh, holistic sort of indigenous sort of, uh, you know, centered uh, um, centers, uh, whether, whether the people who reflect, whether that has an impact on, on their well-being and their flourishing. Mm -hmm. um, because uh, we've recently uh, taken, as I was saying before we started the podcast, we've taken our eldest out of the mainstream um, and I was saying to my, my colleagues, so we're part of this uh, self-directed uh, learning hub in, in Bristol. We've uh -huh. just joined them. And on the Wednesday, I facilitate with Tom Spanish and French. Um, and, and we absolutely love it. It's been amazing. And my the, the colleague did two other adults who are facilitators have actually said how in seven weeks they've watched my son completely transform. Mm -hmm. um, so how he was before looking at me before he was answering to another adult and now he's standing tall he's not looking at me he's answering you know so could you talk to that in terms of your experience and your research do 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 people notice that shift that I've noticed and others have noticed in my child um, and and could you explain why that is what are the benefits of reflection and self-reflection and you know and project work and all of those things I guess mm. so yes people notice the shift I think the shift is 
more pronounced the older students get, right? So if you go into a Montessori classroom and it's five-year-olds, you don't notice that much because they, they, they haven't been broken down yet. But if it's secondary school, right? So students have been in the normal system and then for the secondary school years. What's interesting, you remember I said before developmentally, they have to go through these phases, particularly on the relationship side. What ends up happening is you watch these students having to go through that process. So they get in there and they're all of a sudden asked to take ownership and think for themselves and they have no idea what to do. And sometimes they will do nothing for a period of time until they figure out that if they do nothing, nothing will happen. And so they have to learn to be independent. Then they have to find their place in this community, which means right, they have to stop waiting for somebody to tell them what to do or stop giving them things to do. So they have to go into that, I belong here, I have agency here. And then they can get into the into this sense of like, okay, who am I in this space? And for some students, it's very fast. For some students, it takes longer because they just don't trust that this is gonna stay there. But having interviewed students who have gone through that, I mean, one, they talk about this progression. They talk about, and this is where it's so helpful to have multi-age cohorts because you have older students there who are seeing the newer ones. And they're like, I see you, I know this is hard, you're gonna get there and they can see what's happening. So, um, but yes, it, it is a huge change. And they talk about this as life changing for them because it allows them a new way to kind of go out into the world where they feel much more confident in their capacity and their capability to be driving the car for lack of a better word, right? They sort of, they have now experienced what it is to stumble to quote unquote fail, although most of them hate the word failure, right? Um, they understand sort of ambiguity, like I'm not exactly sure where I'm going, but I'm gonna try it and see where it goes. And if it doesn't work, I'm gonna back up and try something else, right? So projects and open-ended work that way, it encourages it. And the adults are very intentionally mirror, like modeling these skills. So that's the other thing that I think is very interesting in these programs in terms of pedagogy is it is a very intentional transfer from the adult to the student to understand their learning process. So if it's very young students, you actually have the adults narrating for them. Like, so can you see this? And can you ask yourself X, Y, Z until the student is the one who begins to kind of ask themselves that, their, that question. So I think it's, it's just important for us to recognize that we're human beings and we need to learn. We don't have to necessarily be taught, sometimes we do, but we have to be in an environment where we have an opportunity to very intentionally learn it, right? We just don't snap our fingers and have it. And I think the best environments have kind of created a multi-age culture in which this is being reflected between students, between students and adults, and between the adults themselves, right? So to your point, we give the adults in these programs what we want the students to have because they can't give if they're not filled, right? And they haven't experienced it. Yeah, and that I was going to say, presumably, obviously, the, the facilitators, I don't know what you would call them, but the people who support the young people in their learning um, will maybe okay with those, with, with those um, you know, that sense of belonging and agency. But I presume that the parents or the carers also need to be on board, right? Because otherwise, then there's some, there's some jarring. So is that yes. what also happens? It is. And so you remember I said before, everyone's kind of singing off the same song sheet where they sort of know the steps to the dance. And so there's a very intentional, right, here's what we're doing and why. 
and a, this is gonna feel uncomfortable, here's why, right? And, and let's get through this together. So yes, there is a, a very intentional level setting, right? Of information and that's power too, right? In the system where it's the teacher or the school leader who has all the power and the parents and the students are just supposed to come and do what they're told without knowing why, there's a really interesting power dynamic there versus we're gonna lay out for you what it is we're doing here together. And then we are going to build something together and move through this journey together. It's a, it's a shift there in terms of the power dynamics across lots of actors. Yeah, amazing. Wow, this is, this is just such a, a fabulous, um, no, I, I absolutely love your work, your work, um, and um, and I, you know, I we, we'll definitely put the link. I think parents maybe that would be a really good start, right, for educators and parents who are interested to go and buy, you know, the future of smart and explore that. And I'll put your details so people can contact you um, if they want to get in in touch. Is there anything else um, before I ask you my last question that I haven't asked you that you would want to add to this conversation? I think only. We are in such a hard moment. And I think we all have to be gentle with ourselves, whether we are educators who have been asked to just do a tremendous amount, not only in the last couple of years, but over the last couple of decades. Um, if we're parents, right, the world that we live in, the dominant culture, the water that we swim in, is this kind of Cartesian Newtonian worldview and set of systems. And so in this shift, I think we have to be gentle with ourselves because we are fundamentally trying to see the world in new ways. What I do think is we all have access to it in kind of different ways. Uh, it's, it's interesting. I notice for some people it's, you know, I meditate or I do mindfulness and you're like, well, that is actually a muscle that sits on this holistic ecological side. So now how do you take that muscle and sort of apply it in a different context? For some people, it's that they really, they're artistic and they really kind of enjoy process as opposed to, okay, how do you take that muscle? Cause that's, that sits on that part of the curve. But I, I think we have a tendency in our, our dominant culture asks us to be very harsh on ourselves and each other. And the reality is that we're all kind of trying to get through this and into a new space together. And so, yeah, it, it is a collective, we can't do it alone. I, I suppose is the other thing I would say, like you said, you're part of a self-directed learning hub. I think for parents, you know, who might read this book or educators, like do this together. Do some of the exercises at the end of the chapters that I, I really tried to do. Um, you know, I tried to kind of say, how do you embody this now? But do them together. That's how we build the muscles, right? And that's how we give other people permission to do the same. And I, I love what you said that embodied, because I think for me, where I'm at in my thinking is it's very much how do we move around well-being and flourishing between a, a, an intellectual concept, something that an understanding into. So in Papua New Guinea, that's, this is my favorite proverb. In Papua New Guinea, they say anything is a rumor until it's in the muscles. Mm. So knowledge is only a rumor until it's in the muscles. Yes. And you were talking about this particular muscle that we're exercising. So I've what I've heard you say is that actually it's about not just reading the book and, and going, oh yeah, I get this or I understand this on an intellectual level, but actually very much the okay, and now how do I let it sort of filter through and it how does it become embodied in a lived experience? 
Yeah, so you remember in the beginning, I said that the, the original worldview was kind of whole, interconnected and embodied. And we tried really hard as, as, as I was writing this, the three parts are meant to be a little bit of that in terms of like we're seeing big picture zooming in and then seeing the, the big picture again. But each chapter, right, I try to kind of situate what we're talking about in a bigger picture, a story of something that we've seen in the world to kind of contextualize it. Then I try to pull the ideas together in this kind of interconnected way. And then the embodiment is the kind of last piece. So I was trying to really think about, because it's ironic that I wrote a book um, when I was just talking about how this all this conceptual abstract knowledge is a thing. But, uh, but we tried as far as we could to kind of uh, live those principles um, in, in writing it. So yeah. And I think it, you have, you've done that. That works really well, definitely. I definitely got that, that sense from reading the book. So <laughs> mission accomplished. Definitely. Oh, thank you. It's very funny. I never, I, nobody ever really asks about that, but I, I always kind of think of like, we spent so much time on the structure of the book and like trying to think about how we did it and kind of, so I'm glad, I'm glad you, you feel like, um, like I did that. So, yeah. Uh, definitely. Um, I could talk to you for hours, really. Oh, same I could. here. Just amazing. Um, when I wrap up with my guest, I always ask them, um, you know, if there's one thing you would want people to take away from this conversation, then what would it be for you? What would be the message you would people want people to walk away with as a key? Um, two things. We all have our sphere of influence. And I hope that as people read this book, right? Education belongs to all of us. Young people grow into the adults who shape the world. And so education is all of our responsibility. It's not just parents, it's not just educators. Um, and so this is everyone's work. And I wrote the book hoping that people from lots of different spheres would read it and think about what is my sphere of influence in this. Um, and the other is that I think this is an intentional choice. And I think we're at a moment where if we don't shift in this direction, I mean, I really do think the planet is gonna be fine. I'm not sure humanity will be fine. Um, and so, um, you know, not to make it too big, it's both big and small, which is we've got to do this and we can do it if each of us is really intentional about, um, about our sphere of influence and doing the small things we can do every day. And collectively that's what gets us there. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Jolka. What a conversation. Thank you, Fabian. It was lovely to meet you. Yeah, you too. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoy our podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify. You can also reach me via Twitter at Flourishing Heichi, on LinkedIn, or you can join our private Facebook group, Flourishing Education. All the links are easily available on anchor.fm. Thank you so much, and I hope you are flourishing. Bye for now.